This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the Foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Parkinson's Science POV. I'm Maggie Cool, the Fox Foundation's resident science translator, and I'm here with our chief scientific officers, Dr. Brian Fisk and Dr. Mark Frazier. Hi, both. Thanks for joining me again. Hey, Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Good to hear you again. It's Parkinson's Awareness Month, and today we are going to talk a little bit about how doctors and scientists are aware of Parkinson's disease, how to predict and measure and track Parkinson's. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to celebrate that this Parkinson's Awareness Month looks a lot different than the ones past. And you both were back in the community recently, and you're looking forward to some opportunities to meet our friends uh, face-to-face. So just wanted to hear how your trips are going or what you're looking forward to. Yeah, I was in a in March. I was in a at a international conference uh, for the first time in about two years. It was in person, and actually in Spain of all places, it was you know really exciting to uh, to see a lot of you know uh, the people we fund and grantees and researchers uh, in person again. You know, whole bodies after you know two years of seeing them only on Zoom calls. Uh, so you know, you just you miss that sort of interaction. I think you know, and I only think appreciated it. Uh, finally seeing everybody again, but, you know, really, really exciting to be back on the road and some upcoming travel, you know, where I'll get a chance to, to interact with the community again. So really excited by it all. Yeah. It feels so good, Maggie, to be back out on the road. Um, I've had a couple of trips recently and in April, I'll be talking to a lot of the community members about the progress in research. And it just makes such a difference being face to face and meeting people where they are uh, and sharing all the exciting progress about Parkinson's research. Our in-person events may have been paused, but Parkinson's disease did not pause, as our listeners know, and neither did the efforts to come to better treatments and cures. So why don't we just set the stage, Mark? What is it like today measuring PD? Well, it's hard and it's actually very crude uh, measurements. So typically the way people are diagnosed is is through the symptoms, tremor or slowness or stiffness. And um, it can be a really long journey for someone that's um, that has Parkinson's to, to really get a diagnosis because Parkinson's can look like a lot of different things and aging introduces many different complicated factors that may not be Parkinson's. And so um, the way it is currently done and uh, is typically in a neurologist's off, uh, office, um, they will perform uh, tapping tests and have um, individuals walk and assess their movements. Um, and um, it's really up to the neurologist to make that diagnosis. Uh, and um, that's it's, it's hard because symptoms wax and wane from day to day and even from hour to hour. And so it's often hard for a a neurologist to really assess those symptoms in a 20 minute visit and formulate a diagnosis that it it might be Parkinson's. So those are the main challenges. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day as, as someone who is, you know, getting older, 
uh, and you think about all the doctors you go see and all the normal screenings you start to get once you pass a certain age. And one thing you don't do is go see a neurologist. Mm -hmm. And I still, you know, still think that's kind of really an interesting fact that you go to your heart doctor to check your heart health. You go to your dermatologist to check your skin health. You rarely go to a neurologist to check your brain health until you have a reason to do so, like a symptom. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll maybe talk more about that today, but you know, this idea of how do you screen for some of these things and sort of think about you know, your risk for some of these, you know, diseases like Parkinson's and, and the kinds of measures that we could be thinking about. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge today. That is fascinating. We just don't have the tests, I guess, which is what we're going to talk about. But Mark, just to to build on your sort of how it waxes and wanes and crude, I think is a, a great word to use. We heard an anecdote from a member of our community who is very active in studies. And he said that he had three of those standard Parkinson's finger tapping walk over there and back tests in one day by three different doctors and got three different scores. Hmm. So I think that that really illustrates uh, why we need better measures. Um, so, Brian, talk me through. We talked about where we are. Where do we want to be and why is it so important for therapeutic development? Yeah, no, this, I think this is the, the really important part. You know, there's so much about Parkinson's, obviously, we don't know about, but more and more that we're starting to learn about. And so how do you measure that? And, you know, we've talked about the symptoms and at least some of the basic ways that doctors and neurologists will initially measure those symptoms using some of the existing scales that, like you just mentioned, the finger tapping and the walking across the room. What we would, of course, like to be able to do is actually measure more the underlying biology of the disease and sort of the pathology of the disease so that we can actually see what might actually be happening, maybe even before some of the symptoms start showing up. And so I think that is, you know, the direction where we're desperately looking to head and we're starting to see some, you know, exciting results to suggest that we might be getting closer to being able to do that. So, you know, whether it's measuring again, the pathology itself or getting better at measuring some of the symptoms in, in a more sort of, you know, objective way, I think, you know, that's kind of where we're really hoping to head and, you know, what we can talk some more about where we think are actually making progress in that regard. So you said that you were just in Barcelona. Let's talk about some of the exciting news, as you just pointed out. From our partners, our grantees, AC Immune, and the researchers at Skane University Hospital and Lund University in Sweden, there's been a big announcement of an imaging tool. Can you give us the latest on that? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think this was the big sort of highlight of the of the meeting, uh, definitely in Spain. A lot of people were packed into the conference room that day. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, really exciting for us. This is something, an area that we certainly at the foundation have supported and put, you know, millions of dollars towards over the years, working with a whole variety of, you know, uh, partners, including AC Immune, to develop essentially a brain scan, an imaging scan for measuring the clumped alpha-synuclein protein that is, you know, exists in the, in the brain of people with Parkinson's. And so it's been a really tough challenge. It's sort of, you know, not only technologically, you know, being able to, you know, do the imaging, but just chemically, because it's a hard thing to kind of uh, develop a compound that can go into the brain and bind to the clump protein and then sort of show up in the imaging scan. And so we've been hopeful because they were able to do something similar in Alzheimer's disease, which also has its own sort of version of a clump protein uh, with protein called amyloid uh, beta. So we were we assumed that we could probably do something for, for alpha snuclein as well. And, but it's just been a really long road. So the news was exciting that this company, AC immune, uh, have developed a, a compound that they showed has the ability, we believe to 
go in and bind to and show up on the on the imaging scan uh, to detect alpha synuclein. Now, sort of the the caveats here are that they were able to show the signal in people not with Parkinson's actually, but with a different disease called multiple system atrophy, which uh, is another uh, brain disease that also has accumulation of the of the alpha synuclein protein in the brain. It's distributed differently in kind of a different type of brain cell, so that could be some of the reasons why maybe we didn't see it in the Parkinson's brains uh, for the people who were scanned. But the fact that we could detect what we feel pretty confidently was alpha synuclein clumped, I think was the really big highlight and exciting uh, sort of, you know, progress that was made. So with that sort of knowledge that it's feasible now to do, I think that the really exciting next steps are, okay, maybe we just need to optimize the compound further so that it can detect, you know, maybe more sensitive, uh, have more sensitivity to detect the alpha synuclein in the Parkinson's brain. We're also learning that maybe the the shape and form of alpha synuclein in Parkinson's might differ a little bit from a disease like multiple system atrophy. So the investigators are starting to look at that too, and maybe they need to sort of tweak the compound's characteristics so it can bind the, the Parkinson's version. But the fact, again, that we were able to see it at all, I think was a really big, exciting milestone. And I think really there was a lot of excitement in the room when those results were presented. Yeah, I think it's going to galvanize the field. I mean, you mentioned the foundation has been funding this um, over millions of dollars and for many years. And to have this breakthrough, I think, is really just going to energize um, not just the AC immune group, but the entire field and other researchers working on this problem. Because it, it is now shown that it's possible and feasible and it's just going to get quicker from here. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and we know there's some other groups out there that are, you know, that are moving along too with their own versions and uh, some other partners. So I think exactly, I think once one person kind of shows that it can be done, suddenly everybody's now going to go back to their notes and say, okay, you know, we started this, you know, let's c- continue it. There's real promise here, maybe more investment, people will get more interested in investing in these types of uh, uh, imaging approaches. And I just think it's a watershed moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, Mark, you know, you said that the results are going to galvanize the community. I think just echoing your comment that the foundation support was really critical in getting to this point because we're huge funders of this project and a lot of the other ones that are going on. So um, again, you know, you sort of called out our, our community fundraisers before, but just want to to thank all the supporters listening out there. And Mark, I, I have one more question on this tracer. So we were discussing earlier, you know, what if there was a proactive doctor appointment with the neurologist? So that's, you know, sort of predicting disease. Of course, people are living with Parkinson's today. More will be diagnosed soon. How is something like a tracer going to address the different stages of Parkinson's? What would its utility be from risk to early stage to later years with Parkinson's? Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what the data shows, but we know that there are changes that occur in the body and the brain before symptoms develop. And there are um, studies in the brain looking under, under a microscope that show that alpha-synuclein accumulates um, prior to symptoms developing, and it accumulates as the disease progresses. So you can imagine with this tracer in hand, um, it could be, we don't know, and we'll have to support the experiments, but it could be that that this tracer actually identifies that pathological species, the accumulated alpha-synuclein 
in individuals that may be at risk for developing Parkinson's disease. Um, so we can visualize that and use that as a tool to potentially intervene um, with an, a treatment or a medication earlier and potentially before symptoms develop. Also, and you asked about how this could speed therapeutic development, but even in individuals with Parkinson's disease, this tool and this biomarker is going to be really important to track progression of disease, not just clinical progression and how your tremor or slowness might uh, get worse through, uh, over time. But this tracer is, could have the ability to track how the pathology is changing over time and be used as a tool to determine whether a new treatment and intervention is working in clinical trials. So for example, you could imagine using this tracer when some, someone's first enrolled in a clinical trial to understand the total uh, alpha-synuclein levels in the, using the brain scan. And then at the end of the trial, after um, 12 to 18 months, and understand whether the treatment actually slowed the progression or the accumulation of alpha-synuclein or maybe eliminated it altogether. So this is one of, I think, many tools that will be needed to help drug developers and researchers understand whether these medicines are actually really breaking up the clumps and um, treating the underlying biology that, that's happening in Parkinson's disease. There's another aspect that I, you know, really, if this tracer really, you know, turns out to be, you know, the tool that we think it can be research question too, that I think will be really fundamental that we could answer potentially with, with it as well. Whereas, you know, for years now, there's of course been this theory that the pathology, the, the snuclein clumping, you know, and linked to Parkinson's sort of spreads and kind of, you know, uh, moves throughout the, the brain over the course of the disease and that that sort of associates with the um, sort of um, progression of the symptoms as well. But we've never been able to test that directly, right? You know, we've only been able to look at that kind of in a cross-sectional way when, you know, looking in, you know, tissue from brains of people who've passed away with Parkinson's and said, well, here's where the pathology sits in that person. Here's where the pathology sits in this other person and sort of made inferences about that spread. Uh, but with a tool like this, you could actually follow people living with Parkinson's and actually potentially see that spread happen. And that would be, I think, uh, if we actually saw that, that would be such a demonstration of the truth of that potential theory that I think it really would help also establish, you know, more validity for going after that pathology with the therapeutics. And I think really just sort of increase people's confidence that that's, that's the right approach to take. So, so I think that's another uh, byproduct that this uh, tool could really help with is just understanding the progression of the disease itself, um, which mm -hmm. I think would be really, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That information is, is critical. And I just want to remind to the listeners that currently there are 15 therapies directly targeting alpha-synuclein and its pathway already in human testing, many more to come. And because we think that this is a real hallmark pathology, a sort of perhaps a more downstream effect of some of the various causes and contributors to Parkinson's disease, that even treatments and trials on other targets could still benefit from a synuclein tracer. But I want to go back, Mark, to something that you were talking about with the impact on um, therapeutic development with biomarkers, because I think that it's something we think about a lot. What is a cure? And there is, as you were saying, the sort of biological effect. Are we stopping what's happening in the brain? Absolutely. But for the people who are already living with Parkinson's, you also want to have that functional impact. 
you know, you, you're not going to get a therapy approved. Regulators are concerned with this too, based only on biological change. You want to really focus on function and feeling. So measures of the Parkinson's experience or the manifestation of Parkinson's, where are we? What sort of technologies are we using? Where do you see that going? Yeah, it's a good point because, you know, we could change all the alpha synuclein in the brain we want, but unless it reduces tremor and stops the slowness from happening, it really doesn't matter, right? And that's what really matters to people living with Parkinson's disease. So there is, uh, in parallel with developing these molecular tools to track the, the pathology and the biology, um, the foundation has supported a lot of work to um, use different approaches to capture the patient journey. And there's a couple of ways that this is being done. One is to ask specific questions of individuals with Parkinson's, what bothers them? what bothers them the most about their Parkinson's disease and developing tools that can quantify the, the specific bothersome symptoms. So whether it's tremor or walking or balance or falls, there are ways to capture that information using both what people say um, in response to questionnaires or questions. And this could be just having individual score on a one to five basis on how um, much this bothers them, or it could be more um, technological and more sophisticated using sensor-based approaches. And there's been a lot of progress in using wearable sensors, either smartwatches or smartphones to really track the symptoms more precisely. And um, you can measure tremor, you can measure slowness using wearable sensors, using accelerometers, and these are still exploratory, but there's been a lot of research recently to demonstrate that these sensors actually may detect symptoms more precisely and more accurately than the neurologists do because they can be worn for 24 hours a day and the neurologist might see them only for 20 minutes in a, in a given every six months. Um, but also because of the sensitivity of these sensors, they can really capture information that may not be obvious to the naked eye, the human eye. And so these um, advances are happening in parallel with some of the molecular tools that we talked about um, to really capture whether the, um, or de develop measurements to determine whether the symptoms are actually changing or not. One of the really powerful things about also you know, collecting information directly from people with Parkinson's, I think, is this what you learn about how people with Parkinson's describe their symptoms and their daily function. And often that isn't exactly how doctors or researchers would describe it. And so right. I think it's really important that you really be able to talk about Parkinson's through the lens of what it means to someone with the disease and not sort of the more clinical you know, doctor, you know, perspective on that. So I think, you know, when we funded some work over the years, looking at, you know, how people with Parkinson's describe, say their movement symptoms versus how physicians describe it and kind of where that overlap, you know, lies. And I think that, you know, this kind of information collection in this way, I think is really important for, especially then defining measurements and endpoints that can be more, you know, meaningful to the experience of the person with Parkinson's. That's right. We say they, they are the true experts on disease. Yeah. 
And the other thing too, that influences, I think everyone wants to perform for their doctor, exactly, right? Exactly. I mean, according to my medical chart, I've never had more than one glass of wine in an evening. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink at all. You know, I, yeah. I think the passive monitor, you really, you can't lie to your, you know, your watch or, or what's with you all the time. It's a real phenomenon, by the way. I mean, True. people, caregivers report that all the time that, um, People with Parkinson's do better, walk better, yeah. walk differently in the doctor's office than at the home. And so having these, uh, the ability to monitor more remotely and um, over a longer period of time is a really important way to understand the disease and what's happening in, in, in the wild, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And there's a training effect, you know, you get better at these tests over time because you practice doing them multiple times. And so, which is different than something like a, right, like a more objective measure that isn't going to change because you, you know, you've been practicing. So we have talked about a brain scan. We've talked about some digital devices. Um, We're, you know, nearing our time, but just wanted to do maybe like a fast fire what to watch because even the depth of those areas of our portfolio are still only a chosen number of everything that the Fox Foundation is supporting in attempting to understand and measure and track and predict Parkinson's disease. So Mark, let's start with you. What like other sort of bullet points do you want people to, to be watching or know about? I think there's a lot of exciting work happening in biofluids and um, things like spinal fluid and blood um, where researchers are uncovering differences that occur in proteins located in, in uh, spinal fluid or, or blood. So there's one test in particular that's, that's really generating a lot of buzz. Um, it's kind of a, uh, called of a seeding assay where um, I equate it to sort of a snowball effect where you introduce a seed in spinal fluid and this alpha-synuclein sort of propagates and becomes bigger and bigger like a snowball rolling down the hill. And you can measure this in a test tube and this test tube test has remarkable accuracy for detecting Parkinson's disease. And it is um, almost all the time negative for people without Parkinson's disease. Um, now it's being deployed in people at risk to determine whether we can predict someone that might develop Parkinson's disease. So this seeding assay is, is really exciting. And by the way, the, the foundation supported the development of, of this work um, from its uh, early days. So it's exciting to see some of the data coming out of it. Of course, it would be better to have a blood test rather than a spinal fluid test. And there's a, a protein called neurofilament that can be measured in blood. It's actually a brain protein that you can measure in blood. Uh, and there's some recent data suggesting that um, higher levels of this neurofilament protein actually predict individuals that in Parkinson's that may have um, cognitive impairment down the road. And so this could be a really valuable tool to identify individuals that may be at risk for developing cognitive changes and then intervening, using that as a tool to intervene earlier um, with some potential medicine. So I think, you know, biofluid markers are an exciting area. Um, by the way, there's an also, just because we've been taking a lot of rapid COVID tests, there is an, some early research that suggests that you could potentially use a nasal swab to detect changes in alpha-synuclein. And so this is very early, but um, 
you know, the ability to take these tests at home has really changed in the COVID times. And so, you know, I think that could be a real possibility for Parkinson's disease down the road. Like Mark, I think it's really exciting times because I think, you know, again, sort of starting again from the first discussion, you know, what are we ultimately trying to measure? You know, we talked about trying to measure the symptoms better and sort of the experience of Parkinson's better uh, and how important it is to, you know, get that information directly from people with Parkinson's. Um, as we start kind of moving, you know, deeper, you know, into the biology, you start thinking about, you know, we want to measure the pathology. So we talked a lot about how we could measure the, you know, the snuclein and clumping and the different, form, you know, abnormal forms of snuclein that might live in the body. And then as you go deeper there, you want to start really thinking about the sort of underlying maybe disease causes and mechanisms. And there, I think it's really exciting. You know, there's a lot of biology coming from our understanding of the disease that we're starting to pick up on. And just, you know, with that knowledge, we're starting to, you know, get a sense of the cellular processes that might sort of be, you know, dysfunctional or breaking down in Parkinson's. And then thinking about how can you develop better measures for those. And so, you know, there's a handful of, you know, uh, sort of biological processes that uh, the team is investing in different ways to measure, whether it's, you know, how our cells get rid of old protein and some of the ways we can measure that better or how our cells make energy and how that sort of process is regulated and how we can develop measures of that process. So we can actually start to, at the end of the day, have a more precise biological kind of diagnosis of someone's Parkinson's, especially in those early days to kind of understand the trajectory they might be on. And that I think can then give us a more precise way of treating that person. And I think that's, you know, an ultimate goal here too, which is how can we kind of bring Parkinson's into more of a precision medicine sort of reality. So you're not aware of Parkinson's disease. You're aware of your own Parkinson's disease. Your own flavor of Parkinson's, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Parkinson's is a incredibly complex disease, and that offers a lot of challenges, as we talk about frequently. But I think we like to position it more as offering a lot of opportunity and how we can measure, track, predict Parkinson's. So very excited about all that you both shared today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Maggie. And thank you all to our listeners, our generous supporters, and the true experts in Parkinson's, as we said, people with PD. If you want to make a difference in what we know about Parkinson's and how we measure PD, you can join our landmark PPMI study, which is the source of a lot of the findings that Mark and Brian were outlining today. You can learn more about that at michaeljfox.org slash podcast dash PPMI or find that link in the show notes. If you liked our conversation and you'd like to leave us a review, we'd be so grateful. Please share with your friends and engage with the rest of the foundation's robust content at michaeljfox.org. Thanks and speak with you soon. Thanks for listening. Community members like you are bringing us closer than ever to a world without Parkinson's disease. Learn how you can support the Michael J. Fox Foundation in its mission at michaeljfox.org. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.